Chapter Forty Five of the Wide Wide World. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Wide Wide World by Susan Warner. Chapter Forty Five. The Guardian Angel. One Monday evening, John, being tired, was resting in the corner of the sofa. The silence had lasted a long time. Ellen thought so, and standing near, she by and by put her hand gently into one of his, which was thoughtfully passing through the locks of his hair. Her hand was clasped immediately, and quitting his abstracted look, he asked what she had been doing that day. Ellen's thoughts went back to toes of stockings and a long rent in her dress. She merely answered, smiling, that she had been busy. Too busy, I am afraid. Come round here and sit down. What have you been busy about? Ellen never thought of trying to evade a question of his. She colored and hesitated. He did not press it any further. Mr. John said Ellen, when the silence seemed to have set in again, "There is something I have been wanting to ask you this great while. Why hasn't it been asked this great while? I didn't quite like to. I didn't know what you would say to it. I am sorry. I am at all terrible to you, Ellie. Why you are not," said Ellen, laughing. "How you talk! But I don't much like to ask people things." I don't know about that," said he, smiling. "My memory rather seems to say that you ask things pretty often. Ah, yes, those things. But I mean, I don't like to ask things when I am not quite sure how people will like it. You are right, certainly, to hesitate when you are doubtful in such a matter. But it is best not to be doubtful when I am concerned. Well," said Ellen, "I wished very much. I was going to ask if you would have any objection to let me read one of your sermons. None in the world," Ellie said he, smiling. But they have never been written yet. Not written? No. There is all I had to guide me yesterday. A half sheet of paper, and only written on one side. Oh, I can make nothing of this. What is this? Hebrew? Shorthand. And is that all? I cannot understand it," said Ellen, sighing as she gave back the paper. What if you were to go with me next time? They want to see you very much at Ventnor. So do I want to see them," said Ellen. Very much indeed. Mrs. Marshman sent a most earnest request by me that you would come to her the next time I go to Randolph. Ellen gave the matter a very serious consideration, if one might judge by her face. What do you say to it? I should like to go very much," said Ellen slowly. But, but you do not think it would be pleasant? No, no," said Ellen, laughing. I don't mean that. But I think I would rather not. Why? Oh, I have some reasons. You must give me very good ones, or I think I shall overrule your decision, Ellie. I have very good ones, plenty of them. Only, a glance somewhat comical in its keenness overturned Ellen's hesitation. I have indeed," said she, laughing. Only I did not want to tell you. The reason why I don't wish to go was because I thought I should be missed. You don't know how much I miss you," said she, with tears in her eyes. That is what I was afraid of. Your reasons make against you, Ellie. I hope not. I don't think they ought. But Ellie, I am very sure my father would rather miss you once or twice than have you want what would be good for you. I know that. I am sure of that. But that don't alter my feeling, you know. And besides, that isn't all. Who else will miss you? Ellen's quick look seemed to say that he knew too much already, and that she did not wish him to know more. He did not repeat the question, but Ellen felt that her secret was no longer entirely her own. And what do you do, Ellie, when you feel lonely? He went on presently. Ellen's eyes watered at the tone in which these words were spoken. She answered, "Different things. The best remedy for it is prayer, 
and seeking the face of our best friend we forget the loss of others that is what i try ellie when i feel alone do you try it said he softly ellen looked up she could not well speak at that moment there is an antidote in that for every trouble you know who said he that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst it troubles me said he after a pause to leave you so much alone i don't know that it were not best to take you with me every week oh no said ellen don't think of me i don't mind it indeed i do not always feel so sometimes but i get along very well and i would rather stay here indeed i would i am always happy as soon as monday morning comes he rose up suddenly and began to walk up and down the room mr john what ellie i do sometimes seek his face very much when i cannot find it she hid her face in the sofa cushion he was silent a few minutes and then stopped his walk there is something wrong then with you ellie he said gently how has it been through the week if you can let day after day pass without remembering your best friend it may be that when you feel the want you will not readily find him how is it daily ellie is seeking his face your first concern do you give sufficient time faithfully to your bible and prayer ellen shook her head no words were possible he took up his walk again the silence lasted a length of time and he was still walking when ellen came to his side and laid her hand on his arm have you settled that question with your conscience ellie she weepingly answered yes they walked a few turns up and down will you promise me ellie that every day when it shall be possible you will give an hour at least to this business whatever else may be done or undone ellen promised and then with her hand in his they continued their walk through the room till mr humphreys and the servants came in her brother's prayer that night ellen never forgot no more was said at that time about her going to ventnor but a week or two after john smilingly told her to get all her private affairs arranged and to let her friends know they need not expect her the next sunday for that he was going to take her with him as she saw he had made up his mind ellen said nothing in the way of objecting and now that the decision was taken from her was really very glad to go she arranged everything as he had said and was ready saturday morning to set off with a very light heart they went in the sleigh in a happy quiet mood of mind ellen enjoyed everything exceedingly she had not been to ventnor in several months the change of scene was very grateful she could not help thinking as they slid along smoothly and swiftly over the hard frozen snow that it was a good deal pleasanter for once than sitting alone in the parlor at home with her work-basket those days of solitary duty however had prepared her for the pleasure of this one ellen knew that and was ready to be thankful for everything throughout the whole day whether the eye and mind silently indulged in roving or still better loved talk interrupted that as it often did ellen was in a state of most unmixed and unruffled satisfaction john had not the slightest reason to doubt the correctness of his judgment in bringing her he went in but a moment at ventnor and leaving her there proceeded himself to randolph ellen was received as a precious lending that must be taken the greatest care of and enjoyed as much as possible while one has it mrs marshman and mrs chauncey treated her as if she had been their own child ellen chauncey overwhelmed her with joyful caresses and could scarcely let her out of her arms by night or by day she was more than ever mr marshman's pet but indeed she was well petted by the family it was a very happy visit even sunday left nothing to wish for to her great joy not only mrs chauncey went with her in the morning to hear her brother for his church was not the one the family attended but the carriage was ordered in the afternoon also and mrs chauncey and her daughter and miss sophia went with her again when they returned miss sophia who had taken a very great fancy to her 
brought her into her own room, and made her lie down with her upon the bed, though Ellen insisted she was not tired. "'Well, you ought to be if you are not,' said the lady. "'I am.' "'Keep away, Ellen Chauncey. You can't be anywhere without talking. You can live without Ellen for half an hour, can't you? Leave us a little while in quiet.' Ellen, for her part, was quite willing to be quiet, but Miss Sophia was not sleepy, and it soon appeared had no attention of being silent herself. "'Well, how do you like your brother in the pulpit?' she began. "'I like him anywhere, ma'am,' said Ellen, smiling a very unequivocal smile. "'I thought he would have come here with you last night. It is very mean of him.' He never comes near us. He always goes to some wretched little lodging or place in the town there, always, never so much as looks at Ventnor, unless sometimes he may stop for a minute at the door. He said he would come here to-night, said Ellen. Amazing condescending of him. However, he isn't like anybody else. I suppose we must not judge him by common rules. How is Mr. Humphreys, Ellen? I don't know, ma'am, said Ellen. It is hard to tell. He doesn't say much. I think he is rather more cheerful, if anything, than I expected he would be. And how do you get along there, poor child, with only two such grave people about you? I get along very well, ma'am, said Ellen, with what Miss Sophia thought a somewhat curious smile. I believe you will grow to be as sober as the rest of them, said she. How does Mr. John behave? Ellen turned so indutably curious a look upon her at this, that Miss Sophia half laughed and went on. Mr. Humphreys was not always as silent and reserved as he is now. I remember him when he was different, though I don't think he was ever much like his son. Do you ever hear about it? About what, ma'am? Oh, all about his coming to this country, and what brought him to Caracara? No, ma'am. My father, you see, had come out long before, but the two families had always been very intimate in England, and it was kept up after he came away. He was a particular friend of an elder brother of Mr. Humphreys. His estate and my grandfather's lay very near each other and besides there were other things that drew them to each other he married my aunt for one my father made several journeys back and forth in the course of years and so kept up his attachment to the whole family you know and he became very desirous to get mr humphreys over here this mr humphreys you know he was the younger brother younger brothers in england have generally little or nothing but you don't know anything about that ellen he hadn't anything then but his living and that was a small one he had some property left him, though, just before he came to America. But, Miss Sophia, Ellen hesitated, are you sure they would like I should hear all this? Why, yes, child, of course they would. Everybody knows it. Some things made Mr. Humphreys as willing to leave England about that time as my father was to have him. An excellent situation was offered him in one of the best institutions here, and he came out. That's about, let me see, I was just twelve years old, and Alice was one year younger. She and I were just like sisters always from that time. We lived near together, and saw each other every day, and our two families were just like one. But they were liked by everybody. Mrs. Humphreys was a very fine person, very, oh very. I never saw any woman I admired more. Her death almost killed her husband, and I think Alice. I don't know. There isn't the least sign of delicate health about Mr. Humphreys nor Mr. John, not the slightest. Nor about Mrs. Humphreys either. She was a very fine woman." "'How long ago did she die?' said Ellen. Five, six, seven, seven years ago. Mr. John had been left in England till a little before. Mr. Humphreys was never the same after that. He wouldn't hold his professorship any longer. He couldn't bear society. He just went and buried himself at Caracara. That was a little after we came here. How much all this interested Ellen. She was glad, however, when Miss Sophia seemed to have talked herself out, for she wanted very much to think over John's sermon.' 
and as Miss Sophia happily fell into a doze soon after, she had a long, quiet time for it, till it grew dark, and Ellen Chauncey, whose impatience could not hold her, came to seek her. John came in the evening. Ellen's patience and politeness were severely tried in the course of it, for while she longed exceedingly to hear what her brother and the older members of the family were talking about, animated, delightful conversation, she was sure, Ellen Chauncey detained her in another part of the room, and for a good part of the evening she had to bridle her impatience and attend to what she did not care about. She did it, and Ellen Chauncey did not suspect it, and at last she found means to draw both her and herself near the larger group. But they seemed to have got through what they were talking about. There was a lull. Ellen waited and hoped they would begin again. "'You had a full church this afternoon, Mr. John,' said Miss Sophia. He bowed gravely. "'Did you know whom you had among your auditors? The blank and blank were there, naming some distinguished strangers in the neighborhood. I think I saw them.' "'You think you did. Is that an excess of pride or an excess of modesty? Now, do be a reasonable creature, and confess that you are not insensible to the pleasure and honor of addressing such an audience.' Ellen saw something like a flash of contempt for an instant in his face, instantly succeeded by a smile. "'Honestly, Miss Sophia, I was much more interested in an old woman that sat at the foot of the pulpit stairs.' "'That old thing,' said Miss Sophia. "'I saw her,' said Mrs. Chauncey. "'Poor old creature!' She seemed most deeply attentive when I looked at her. I saw her, cried Ellen Chauncey, and the tears were running down her cheeks several times. I didn't see her, said Ellen Montgomery. As John's eye met hers, he smiled. But do you mean to say, continued Miss Sophia, that you are absolutely careless as to who hears you? I have always one hearer, Miss Sophia, of so much dignity, that it sinks the rest into great insignificance. That is a rebuke, said Miss Sophia, but nevertheless, I shall tell you that I liked you very much this afternoon. He was silent. I suppose you will tell me next, said the young lady, laughing, that you are sorry to hear me say so. I am, said he gravely. Why, may I ask? You show me that I have quite failed in my aim, so far at least as one of my hearers was concerned. How do you know that? Do you remember what Louis the Fourteenth said to Monsieur? Mon père, j'ai entendu plusieurs grands orateurs dans ma chapelle. J'en ai été fort content. Pour vous toutes les fois que je vous ai entendu, j'ai été très mécontent de moi-même. Ellen smiled. Miss Sophia was silent for a moment. Then you really mean to be understood that provided you fail of your aim, as you say, you do not care a straw what people think of you? As I would take a bankrupt's promissory note in lieu of told gold, it gives me small gratification, Miss Sophia, very small indeed, to see the bowing heads of grain that yet my sickle cannot reach. I agree with you most heartily, said Mr. George Marshman. The conversation dropped, and the two gentlemen began another in an undertone, pacing up and down the floor together. The next morning, not sorrowfully, Ellen entered the sleigh again, and they set off homewards. "'What a sober little piece that is,' said Mr. Howard. "'Oh, sober!' cried Ellen Chauncey. "'That is because you don't know her, Uncle Howard. She is the cheerfulest, happiest girl that I ever saw, always.' "'Except Ellen Chauncey, always,' said her uncle." "'She is a singular child,' said Mrs. Gillespie. "'She is grave, certainly, but she don't look moped at all, "'and I should think she would be to death.' "'There's not a bit of moping about her,' said Miss Sophia. "'She can laugh and smile as well as anybody, "'though she has sometimes that peculiar grave look of the eyes "'that would make a stranger doubt it. "'I think John Humphreys has infected. "'He has something of the same look himself.' "'I am not sure whether it is the eyes or the mouth, Sophia,' said Mr. Howard. "'It is both,' said Miss Sophia.' Did you ever see the eyes look one way, and the mouth another? 
"'And besides,' said Ellen Chauncey, "'she has reason to look sober, I am sure.' "'She is a fascinating child,' said Mrs. Gillespie. "'I cannot comprehend where she gets the manner she has. "'I never saw a more perfectly polite child, "'and there she has been for months, "'with nobody to speak to her but two gentlemen and the servants. "'It is natural to her, I suppose. "'She can have nobody to teach her.' "'I am not so sure as to that,' said Miss Sophia, "'but I have noticed the same thing often. "'Did you observe her last night, Matilda, when John Humphreys came in? "'You were talking to her at the moment. "'I saw her before the door was opened. "'I saw the color come, and her eyes sparkle, "'but she did not look towards him for an instant "'till you had finished what you were saying to her, "'and she had given, as she always does, her modest, quiet answer, "'and then her eye went straight as an arrow to where he was standing.' "'And yet,' said Mrs. Chauncey, "'she never moved towards him when you did, "'but stayed quietly on that side of the room with the young ones, "'till he came round to them. "'And it was some time, too. "'She is an odd child,' said Miss Sophia, laughing. "'What do you think she said to me yesterday? "'I was talking to her and getting rather communicative "'on the subject of my neighbor's affairs, "'and she asked me gravely, the little monkey, "'if I was sure they would like her to hear it. "'I felt quite rebuked, "'though I didn't choose to let her know as much.' "'I wish Mr. John would bring her every week,' said Ellen Chauncey, sighing. "'It would be so pleasant to have her.' Towards the end of the winter, Mr. Humphreys began to propose that his son should visit England and Scotland during the following summer. He wished him to see his family and to know his native country, as well as some of the most distinguished men and institutions in both kingdoms. Mr. George Marshman also urged upon him some business in which he thought he could be eminently useful.' But Mr. John declined both propositions, still thinking he had more important duties at home. This only cloud that rose above Ellen's horizon scattered away. One evening, it was a Monday, in the twilight, John was as usual pacing up and down the floor. Ellen was reading in the window. "'Too late for you, Ellie.' "'Yes,' said Ellen, "'I know. I will stop in two minutes.' But in a quarter of that time she had lost every thought of stopping, and knew no longer that it was growing dusk. Somebody else, however, had not forgotten it. The two minutes were not ended, when a hand came between her and the page, and quietly drew the book away. "'Oh, I beg your pardon,' cried Ellen, starting up. "'I entirely forgot about it.' He did not look displeased. He was smiling. He drew her arm within his. "'Come and walk with me. Have you had any exercise to-day?' "'No.' "'Why not? I had a good deal to do, and I had fixed myself so nicely on the sofa with my books, and it looked cold and disagreeable out of doors. Since when have you ceased to be a fixture?' "'What? Oh,' said Ellen, laughing, "'how shall I ever get rid of that troublesome word? "'What shall I say? "'I had arranged myself, established myself, "'so nicely on the sofa. "'And did you think that a sufficient reason "'for not going out?' "'No,' said Ellen, "'I did not, and I did not decide that I would not go, "'and yet I let it keep me at home after all, "'just as I did about reading a few minutes ago. "'I meant to stop, but I forgot it, "'and I should have gone on, I don't know how long, "'if you had not stopped me. "'I very often do so.' He paused a minute, and then said, "'You must not do so any more, Ellie.' The tone, in which there was a great deal of love and decision, wound round Ellen's heart, and constrained her to answer immediately, "'I will not. I will not. Never parley with conscience. It is a dangerous habit. But then it was only—about trifles, I grant you, but the habit is no trifle. There will not be a just firmness of mind and steadfastness of action, where tampering with duty is permitted, even in little things.' "'I will try not to do it,' Ellen repeated. "'No,' said he, smiling. "'Let it stand as at first. "'I will not mean something. "'I will try is very apt to come to nothing. "'I will keep thy precepts with my whole heart. "'Not I will try. "'Your reliance is precisely the same in either case. 
"'I will not, John,' said Ellen, smiling. "'What were you poring over so intently a while ago?' "'It was an old magazine. Blackwood's Magazine, I believe, is the name of it. I found two great piles of them in a closet upstairs the other day, and I brought this one down. "'This is the first that you have read?' "'Yes, I got very much interested in a curious story there. Why?' "'What will you say, Ellie, if I ask you to leave the rest of the two piles unopened?' "'Why, I will say that I will do it, of course,' said Ellen, with a little smothered sigh of regret, however, if you wish it. "'I do wish it, Ellie.' "'Very well. I'll let them alone, then. I have enough other reading. I don't know how I happened to take that one up, because I saw it there, I suppose.' "'Have you finished Nelson yet?' "'Oh, yes, I finished it Saturday night. Oh, I like it very much. I am going all over it again, though. I like Nelson very much, don't you?' "'Yes, as well as I can like a man of very fine qualities without principle.' "'Was he that?' said Ellen. "'Yes. Did you not find it out?' "'I'm afraid your eyes were blinded by admiration.' "'Were they?' said Ellen. "'I thought he was so very fine in everything, and I should be sorry to think he was not. "'Look over the book again by all means, with a more critical eye, "'and when you have done so, you shall give me your cool estimate of his character.' "'Oh, me,' said Ellen. "'Well, but I don't know whether I can give you a cool estimate of him.' however, I'll try. I cannot think coolly of him now, just after Trafalgar. I think it was a shame that Collingwood did not anger as Nelson told him to, don't you? I think he might have been obeyed while he was living at least. It is difficult, said John, smiling, to judge correctly of many actions without having been on the spot, and in the circumstances of the actors. I believe you and I must leave the question of Trafalgar to more nautical heads. How pleasant this moonlight is, said Ellen. What makes it pleasant? "'What makes it pleasant? I don't know. I never thought of such a thing. "'It is made to be pleasant. I can't tell why. Can anybody? "'The eye loves light for many reasons, but all kinds of light are not equally agreeable. "'What makes the peculiar charm of these long streams of pale light across the floor, "'and the shadowy brightness without?' "'You must tell,' said Ellen. I cannot. "'You know we enjoy anything much more by contrast. I think that is one reason. "'Night is the reign of darkness, which we do not love.' and here is light struggling with the darkness, not enough to overcome it entirely, but yet banishing it to nooks and corners, and distant parts, by the side of which it shows itself in contrasted beauty. Our eyes bless the unwanted victory. Yes, said Ellen, we only have moonlight nights once in a while. But that is only one reason out of many, and not the greatest. It is a very refined pleasure, and trying to resolve it into its elements is something like trying to divide one of these same white rays of light into the many various colored ones that go to form it, and not by any means so easy a task. Then it was no wonder I couldn't answer, said Ellen. No, you are hardly a full-grown philosopher yet, Ellie. The moonlight is so calm and quiet, Ellen observed, admiringly. And why is it calm and quiet? I must have an answer to that. "'Because we are generally calm and quiet at such times,' Ellen ventured, after a little thought. "'Precisely. We and the world. And association has given the moon herself the same character. Besides that, her mild, sober light is not fitted for the purposes of active employment, and therefore the more graciously invites us to the pleasures of thought and fancy.' "'I am loving it more and more the more you talk about it,' said Ellen, laughing. "'And there you have touched another reason, Ellie.' for the pleasure we have, not only in moonlight, but in most other things. When two things have been in the mind together, and made any impression, the mind associates them, and you cannot see or think of the one, without bringing back the remembrance of the feeling of the other. If we have enjoyed the moonlight in pleasant scenes, and happy hours, with friends that we loved, though the sight of it may not always make us directly remember them, 
yet it brings with it a waft from the feeling of the old times, sweet as long as life lasts. And sorrowful things may be associated, too, said Ellen. Yes, and sorrowful things. But this power of association is the cause of half the pleasure we enjoy. There is a tune my mother used to sing. I cannot hear it now without being carried swiftly back to my boyish days, to the very spirit of the time. I feel myself spring over the green sward as I did then. Oh, I know that is true, said Ellen. The camellia, the white camellia, you know. I like it so much ever since what you said about it one day. I never see it without thinking of it, and it would not seem half so beautiful but for that. What did I say about it? Don't you remember? You said it was like what you ought to be, and what you should be, if you ever reached heaven, and you repeated that verse in the Revelation about those that have not defiled their garments. I always think of it. It seems to give me a lesson. How eloquent of beautiful lessons all nature would be to us, said John musingly, if we had but the eye and ear to take them in. And in that way you would heap associations upon associations? Yes, till our storehouse of pleasure was very full. You do that now, said Ellen. I wish you would teach me. I have read precious things sometimes in the bunches of flowers you are so fond of, Ellie. Cannot you? I don't know. I only think of themselves. Except, sometimes they make me think of Alice. You know, from any works we may form some judgment of the mind and character of their author? From their writings I know you can, said Ellen. From what other works? From any in which the mind, not the hand, has been the creating power. I saw you very much interested the other day in the Eddystone Lighthouse. Did it help you to form no opinion of Mr. Smeaton? Why, yes, certainly, said Ellen. I admired him exceedingly for his cleverness and perseverance. But what other works? I can't think of any. There is the lighthouse, that is one thing. What do you think of the ocean waves that now and then overwhelm it? Ellen half shuddered. I shouldn't like to go to sea, John. But you were speaking of men's works and women's works. Well, women's works, I cannot help forming some notion of a lady's mind and character from the way she dresses herself. Can you? Do you? I cannot help doing it. Many things appear in the style of a lady's dress that she never dreams of, the style of her thoughts, among others. It is a pity ladies didn't know that, said Ellen, laughing. They would be very careful. It wouldn't mend the matter, Ellie. That is one of the things in which people are obliged to speak truth. As the mind is, so it will show itself. But we have got a great way from the flowers, said Ellen. You shall bring me some to-morrow, Ellie, and we will read them together. There are plenty over there now, said Ellen, looking towards the little flower-stand, which was as full and flourishing as ever. But we can't see them well by this light. A bunch of flowers seems to bring me very near the hand that made them. They are the work of his fingers, and I cannot consider them without being joyfully assured of the glory and loveliness of their Creator. It is written as plainly to me in their delicate painting and sweet breath and curious structure as in the very pages of the Bible, though no doubt without the Bible I could not read the flowers. I never thought much of that, said Ellen. And then, you find particular lessons in particular flowers? Sometimes. Oh, come here, said Ellen, pulling him towards the flower-stand, and tell me what this Daphne is like. You need not see that, only smell it, that's enough. Do, John, and tell me what it is like. He smiled as he complied with her request, and walked away again. Well, what is it, said Ellen? I know you have thought of something. It is like the fragrance that Christian society sometimes leaves upon the spirit, when it is just what it ought to be. My Mr. Marshman, exclaimed Ellen. John smiled again. I thought of him, Ellie, and I thought also of Cowper's lines. When one who holds communion with the skies has filled his urn where those pure waters rise, descends and dwells among us meaner things, it is as if an angel shook his wings. 
Ellen was silent a moment from pleasure. "'Well, I have got an association now with the Daphne,' she said joyously, and presently added, sighing, "'How much you see in everything, that I do not see at all.' "'Time, Ellie,' said John, "'there must be time for that. It will come. Time is cried out upon as a great thief. It is people's own fault. Use him but well, and you will get from his hand more than he will ever take from you.' Ellen's thoughts travelled on a little way from this speech, and then came a sigh of some burden as it seemed, and her face was softly laid against the arm she held. "'Let us leave all that to God,' said John gently. Ellen started. "'How did you know? How could you know what I was thinking of?' "'Perhaps my thoughts took the same road,' said he, smiling. "'But, Ellie, dear, let us look to that one source of happiness that can never be dried up. It is not safe to count upon anything else.' "'It is not wonderful,' said Ellen, in a tremulous voice, "'if I—' "'It is not wonderful, Ellie, nor wrong.' But we, who look up to God as our Father, who rejoice in Christ our Saviour, we are happy, whatever beside we may gain or lose. Let us trust Him, and never doubt that, Ellie. But still, said Ellen, but still, we will hope and pray alike in that matter, and while we do, and may, with our whole hearts, let us leave ourselves in our Father's hand, the joy of the knowledge of Christ, the joy the world cannot intermeddle with, the peace it cannot take away. Let us make that our own, Ellie." and, for the rest, put away all anxious care about what we cannot control. Ellen's hand, however, did not just then lie so lightly on his arm as it did a few minutes ago. He could feel that, and could see the glitter of one or two tears in the moonlight as they fell. The hand was fondly taken in his, and as they slowly paced up and down, he went on, in low tones of kindness and cheerfulness, with his pleasant talk, till she was too happy in the present to be anxious about the future looked up again and brightly into his face, and questions and answers came as gaily as ever. End of chapter 45